Thanks for listening to the Campus Collective Podcast. As always, we pray that this resource is a helpful supplement for you as a follower of Jesus and as an active member in your local church. We love God's design for His church, and we believe that this resource could never substitute the incredible things that come from active involvement with a community of believers. Campus Collective is a ministry of Huntington Community Church. To learn more, visit our website at HuntingtonCommunityChurch.com. All right, if you have your Bible with you, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Psalms. Uh, We're going to be in Psalm chapter 1 tonight. Um, If you are new here, or if we just haven't gotten a chance to meet, my name is Tanner, and I am an intern here at Collective. Um, So while you're finding your place there uh, in Psalm chapter 1, I just kind of want to let you in on a little behind the scenes um, of of what I'm hoping to do tonight. So obviously we're going to get into uh, the first couple verses of Psalm 1, and we're going to look at what they mean, and we're going to see how we can... um, apply them to our lives and what they can tell us about Jesus. Um, but there's also kind of a, a, a second goal that I have beyond just the meaning of the text that has to do with kind of how I've structured this sermon. And so while you're getting there to Psalm 1, um, I just want to explain a conviction that I've had over the last few months in my own spiritual life, uh, namely that I have noticed how much I've rushed my time in the Word. Um, I read big chunks at a time. I, I go through it really, really quickly. And so at the beginning of the year, I decided that I wanted to totally try to change up the way that I spent time in the Word in 2022, and I wanted to be more slow and meditative. And so I I have been, just in the first couple of months of 2022, really, really blessed by that and um, have have seen it be be really helpful to me. And we're going to look at what meditation means in this passage. Um, But what I'm hoping tonight you can also get from this is just kind of an, an example of what it looks like to meditate slowly through Scripture. And so hopefully, maybe, maybe you also recognize that that's something that's lacking in your life, that it seems like you're moving really fast through the things that you read. And so tonight, we're going to look at the first two verses, that's it, of Psalm chapter 1. And the point of these, these, these verses talk about meditating on God's Word. And using this passage, I hope to give you an example sort of of what it looks like to just go slow, to to take it word by word and phrase by phrase and try to just pull out um, as much meaning and just, and just sit with, with each phrase for as long as we can, just getting as much out of it as we can. And so that's kind of uh, just a behind-the-scenes look of what my, my structural goal is with this. And then, of course, we're going to dive in and try to see um, what God's Word is uh, trying to get for us to get out of it itself. And so uh, Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, um, let's go ahead and, and read this together. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So slowly, phrase by phrase, word by word, let's see how much we can get out of this passage. Let's start at the beginning. Blessed is the man. So as we start here, and as we kind of get the context for what this passage is getting at, we, we come across that word blessed. In Hebrew, this word really is like an expression. It's, it's an expression that ends with an exclamation point, so to speak, in their grammar that just says, how happy. So in other words, what this psalm is doing is painting a picture of what a happy person looks like. It's saying, how happy is the person, in other words. Now, I imagine at this point, this has probably piqued a little bit of interest. 
We all want to be happy, right? That's like what motivates a lot of what we do, that uh, drives a lot of the decisions we make in our day. We all want to be happy. Additionally, many of us aren't happy, or at least not as happy as we wish we would be. And so we all want to be happy, right? That's, that's something that we all want that motivates us, and we all could be a lot happier. And so hopefully coming to a passage here that says, here's what a happy person looks like, uh, piques a little bit of interest. As I was looking um, kind of at just how happy most people are, I wanted to get an idea of just kind of how happy people are as I was, as I was preparing this. And I came across a survey that has taken every, every few years that is, is pretty reputable. It's a, it's a pretty um, credited social survey that every few years surveys happiness in people. And the latest time it was, uh, it was surveyed was in 2020 when 14% of people said that they would call themselves very happy. That was the lowest number ever, as long as this survey has been recorded. Now, think about why. We've had a lot of threats to our happiness in the last few years. We've had canceled plans. We've had just continual disappointments of things we thought were going to happen that just didn't. Maybe it's, you know, disappointed in how high school ended or how college has, has turned out. It's disappointment in... Um, just the way that maybe, you know, you know, that your relationships have gone in these past couple of years. Maybe it's just isolation. Maybe you're unhappy because you've been isolated from people and, and around way less people than you typically would have been. Maybe you've lost loved ones or, or watched loved ones suffer over the last couple of years. But whatever it is, people are, at least as of this survey, and I don't know about you, but I don't really think the world has gotten happier since this was taken in 2020, People were the least happy that they have ever been. And so I come to this passage aware that there's a decent chance many of you have walked in here tonight unhappy. And so before we keep going, I just want you to be honest with yourself. Are you happy? Not, you know, would you tell your D group or your community group that you're doing well? You know, not if, if someone asked you, would you say that you were pretty happy? Are you happy? And what I hope to do over the next half hour or so is to use this passage, these two verses, to answer the question, how can I be happy? What is the secret to happiness? And what I don't mean is some kind of shallow, superficial, emotional happiness. What I'm, what I'm talking about is the happiness that is, that is a contentment, that's a satisfaction. And, and what we find in this passage at least what I, what I hope to show you, are three things that a happy person does not do in verse 1, and two things a happy person does do in verse 2. So, so that's where we're headed. Um, and if you're a believer, if you were a Christian, if you believe the Bible, and you are not currently happy, if you're depressed, if you're struggling to find joy in your circumstances, if you just feel spiritually dry right now, or empty, or lonely, or confused, I ask that you look with me at this book that we claim to base our life around and try to glean some kind of truth tonight that has the potential to change the trajectory of your current situation. Like, do you really believe the Bible has the power to do that? We, we claim to build our lives on this book, and here's a passage essentially saying, here's what a happy person looks like. So why not just lean in all the way to this with me tonight and trust that if we follow it, it really might make us happy. And if you're not a believer... If you came as a guest with a friend tonight, if you're 
not exactly sure what you believe or you know that you don't believe the same things that we do, what I ask is just that you hear me out. You're already here. You're not probably going anywhere. Um, and chances are you're skeptical right now. You're, you, don't, you don't believe that this book is true, and now some guy is standing up here claiming that he's about to tell you how to be happy. But while you're here, I just ask that you consider, right, that you just consider while you're sitting here that maybe this is true, and maybe there's something here that has a potential to make you happy because you've probably been looking, you've probably been trying to find happiness, you've probably been let down. So would you just consider with me that, that this really might have something for us? So let's, let's keep going. Three things a happy person doesn't do, two things a happy person does do to answer this question, how can I be happy? So let's start the next line here in verse one. What are three things a happy person doesn't do? First, a happy person does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. So I want to kind of explain who this is talking about before we really get into what it's saying. Who are the wicked? And in the next line, it talks about the sinner. These are very similar words, and they mean very similar things. I want to clarify that these are not probably where our minds are going when we hear this. We're probably, if you're like me, when you, when you first hear wicked, you're probably thinking of the most evil, scheming, terrible people that you can think of. But that's not really painting an accurate picture of this. The, the words wicked and sinner in the next line really just mean ungodly. Some translations translate them ungodly. So we're all wicked by default. It, it simply just means those who don't know God. So I, I have a quote uh, from, from Charles Spurgeon, who I think really uh, explains well what this, this means by the ungodly and how it's probably not exactly the things that we're thinking of when, when we hear that word. Spurgeon says, the ungodly are not necessarily drunkards or swearers. These are ungodly, of course, but not all ungodly persons are like them. The ungodly are just your go-easy sort of people. They may go to church or chapel or go nowhere. They are often very respectable, good neighbors, kind to the poor. They may hold public office and enter parliament. There is no place they may not fill, for it is not considered an offense among men to be ungodly. The tragic folly and sin of these people is that they have neglected the chief thing to be remembered, namely that there is a God, that they are his creatures, and being his creatures ought to live to him. So in other words, the wicked or the sinner that these verses talk about is really just your average person who doesn't know God. In fact, it describes what every single person either currently is or was prior to salvation. Listen to what uh, some other passages in the Bible say about people and, and wickedness. Genesis 6, 5. This is right before um, the story of the flood. God says, the word says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Paul offers a New Testament perspective on the scope of wicked people in Romans 3, 11 and 12. He says, no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. Listen to this, no one does good, not even one. And so, even though I said the wicked are those who don't know God, I don't want to deceive any of us, even those of us who are Christians, into thinking that there are no traces of sin or wickedness within us. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we know that this isn't true. We know that we've sinned in the last hour. We know we have been wicked today. And getting this right is kind of important. Getting right kind of who I'm talking about when I, when I talk about the wicked or the, the sinners 
is, is really important because I think that if you get it wrong, it keeps you from, if, if you get it right, it keeps you from thinking two things wrong about where I'm headed over the next little bit. First, I think it keeps you from legalism and, and from hearing kind of the strict set of rules that, you know, are kind of cliche that, you know, bad people do and Christians don't or, or vice versa. And, and when I get into some of these things that, that these verses say are killing our happiness, that's where your mind is going to go. And you're, what you're going to hear me saying is just a bunch of things not to do. Or on the flip side, you could hear this and, and, you know, interpret wicked wrongly. And you could give yourself an easy pass thinking that, like, there are no traces of this in you because you're not doing these, like, super bad things. And so I just want to kind of clarify that because as, as we get into this, I think it's important to make sure that you, you understand that we are all, by default, wicked. And that really what, what wickedness looks like is just not remembering, the way Spurgeon said it, not remembering that there is a God, that we are his creatures, and that we ought to live for him being his creatures. And so there's an important word in this phrase, in this first phrase about walking in the counsel of the wicked that adds a lot of meaning to, to what the psalmist is getting at. It's the word walk. So, so walking is something that implies a process. It's ongoing. It's a pattern. It's a lifestyle. What, difference, what differentiates a Christian from a non-Christian or a wicked person from a blessed person, or later in Psalm 1, it, it calls a righteous person, is not whether or not they sin, but whether or not their lifestyle is one of sin. Do you get that distinction? So, so walking has to do with a lifestyle. So let's keep trying to piece this together. A happy person does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. What this phrase is saying then, so far to where we've gotten, is that the lifestyle of a happy person is not based upon the counsel of people who don't know God. So now, counsel. What is counsel? Counsel is the advice, the wisdom, the purposes. Think, think of a counselor. Think of people who you know who are counselors. We hear that word as like a, like a therapeutic counselor, like you go see a counselor or a therapist to help you, you know, work through uh, serious situations or um, a school counselor, right? Like a guidance counselor at school who helps you plan out your, your schedule and, and be on the right track to graduate and all those sorts of things. So I think that word there, even guidance, adds a lot of meaning to this. The, the council has to do with the guidance. So connecting this with all the thoughts above so far that we've gotten to, the point this phrase seems to be making is that a happy person does not live their lifestyle based on the advice or guidance of people who don't know God. They don't live in a way that is according to the wisdom and the purposes of the ungodly. So let's make this practical. And this is what this is kind of going to look like. We're going to look at these things that a happy person doesn't do or later that a happy person does do. And then we're just going to look at what, what this looks like in our lives. How I've seen as I've prepared this and as I've meditated on this and, and spent you know, the last few months in, the, in these pas- this passage, how I've seen myself uh, in, 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 this, in this stuff. And so let's get practical. Here, here's some questions to, to look at that have to do with the counsel of the wicked. Do you think the way you do about things based on the way the world tells you to? Like I said, when I clarified who the wicked are, this is not just like really big or bad things, but also just things that have to do with selfishness, right? Like do you think in the same like self-absorbed um, ways that just the world does, ways that don't consider God, how you should treat and take care of yourself? I mean, think, think of some things that would make up the counsel of the wicked, right? Like the world has a lot of popular adages and sayings and phrases that we like to throw out as like mantras that live our lives by and fill our Instagram bios with, right? Things like follow your dreams, do what makes you happy. Follow your heart. <laughs> you do you. You only live once. 
These are just some examples of what the counsel of the wicked looks like. And so do you think the way you do about things based on the way the world does, or to kind of bring this out a little bit, is your worldview. And what I mean by worldview is like the entire set of values or beliefs that you hold that influence the way you perceive the world, like the fundamental ideas you hold that shape the way you think about everything. Is your worldview primarily informed by our society instead of by the Bible? Do you form your opinions based on like the societal norm without giving a whole lot of critical thought to it? Do you assume that the majority is just usually right? Do you form your opinions on controversial social issues by what you read the most online? Another question, where do you turn to when faced with a major decision to make or when you need advice for how to deal with a conflict? Do you go to people who will allow you or encourage you to sin? People who you, you go to knowing that they're gonna just tell you what you wanna hear? Right? Like, I know we all do that. I know I do that. I, I have a dilemma and I want to ask somebody about it. And so I go to the person who I know is going to tell me exactly what I want to hear. Do you go to people who are going to neglect the gospel and the Great Commission as they help you try to navigate your relationships, your career moves, your financial decisions? Hear me. The, the world that exists in a fallen and corrupted state cannot offer you anything that will lead to a lasting and serious happiness. It can't. It's corrupted. It's broken. Nothing that it has for you can give you eternal happiness. Why why, why do you think there are so many self-help books trying to tell you how to be happy? Like, don't you think if they worked, there'd only be one? And we wouldn't need to, like, keep going back and hearing another way to get happy? Like, everybody is looking for how to get happy. Christian, why do we think and and act like we can find our, our counsel, our happiness in the counsel that this world has to give us? And and, and non-Christians, do you notice that every path the world offers that looks promising ultimately leads to the same unhappy end? Now, before I move on from this phrase, I want to be clear that this is not to say we have nothing to learn from people who aren't Christians. Please don't hear me say that or think that the text is saying this because there are people who are trying to say that right now. There are people, there are are pastors and, and, and other Christians who are trying to tell you that there is nothing that we can learn from somebody who doesn't come from a biblical worldview, that doesn't believe the Bible. And I'm saying that is not true. And what, for the sake of this, we'll call common grace wisdom, God has mercifully given valuable insight to people who aren't Christians. So I am not saying that no scientific or sociological or whatever else development that wasn't originated by a Christian should be ignored and has nothing for us. I'm not saying to drop out of college because you're inevitably going to have a professor who doesn't believe the Bible. I'm not saying that your parents, your grandparents, as as hostile to the gospel as maybe they are, have no good advice to ever give you about life. So value common grace wisdom. Just don't base your entire lifestyle on it. And so I want to end this point and each point kind of with the personal kind of summary question to examine. So here, on on walking in the counsel of the wicked, do I live my life based on the advice and guidance and purposes and wisdom of those who don't know God? If so, I will not be happy. Second thing that a happy person doesn't do, a happy person does not stand in the way of sinners. That's 
Break this down. Stand. This word means like to abide. It's the place that you stay. And then stand in the way. This is kind of a figurative word. It's talking about like, like a, a road or a course of life. And so again, what we're seeing here is a description of a certain kind of ongoing lifestyle. Think, think about a road. Use, use that imagery um, kind of as what you think. It has to do with where you're headed. So what this is getting at is, is your way of life leading you down a path that will end up in the same place as the one the lost people are on. In other words, this is dealing with the way you live and the things you live for. So counsel above deals more with the way that you think, where this, the way, has to do with what you actually do, how you behave. So some practical questions for consideration again. Do you spend your weekends the same way as the rest of the world? Now, again, this doesn't just mean in all the ways that your mind might be kind of automatically going as to how the world spends their weekends, partying and, you know, whatever that a typical college student does. Now, I guess it doesn't mean any less than that, but it's easy to hear these things, again, and get very legalistic or to give yourself some kind of easy pass. And I don't just mean you spend your weekends doing those things. Think, think about what we established a sinner means. It's just your average person. Do you spend your weekend like the rest of the world just by simply wasting it on your own selfish enjoyment? I mean, we talked about how some wicked people or some ungodly people fill church pews on Sunday mornings. Do you go to church just like the ungodly described above? Do you go just trying to like fill yourself up with some kind of motivation and inspiration for the week? Or do you go seeking to serve in whatever way you can? Do you go trying to lift up Jesus this, this next question, this is convicting for me. As I get ready to graduate and I think back on um, the last few years of college for me, do you spend your summer breaks the same way as the rest of the world? Do you just go home and get a little summer job where you can pocket some money or put some into a savings account while you're biding time for a couple of months until school starts back up? Again, this kind of has to do with the way you live, the things you're living for. We as Christians have, have different priorities. We have, we have higher callings, right? We, we know that we have been tasked with, with a com- great commission to make disciples. And so uh, somebody who uh, is, is happy, who's not standing in the way of sinners, who's not living for the same things as the rest of the, of, of the world, we, we should be living with, with these kinds of things in mind. We should be thinking about the fact that there are billions of people on the planet who've literally never heard of Jesus. And we should be spending our, our breaks or our weekends or our resources and all of these things with, with that as our end goal. That's the type of thing that a happy person is going to live for. So do you spend your weekends the same, your summer breaks the same? Are your relationships the same as they would be if you didn't follow Jesus? Your, your dating relationships, your engagement, your marriages, but just your friendships, your relationships with your parents, with your siblings, Do you consume the same forms of entertainment or fill your moment-by-moment free time in the same way as the rest of the world? Are you thinking about your career the same way as the rest of the world? Are your goals in school the same? Are you trying to just graduate with a job that gets you uh, a, a nice, solid job somewhere where you can get a good, steady income so you can get back to the couch at the end of every day? 
That, that's the way of the world. And I think it's, it's obvious, if you just look around at the world, that does not lead to happiness. The American dream doesn't lead to happiness. Are, are you living that way, or does it look different? If, if you're a Christian, and if you want to be a happy Christian, you won't be satisfied with the same priorities and goals as the rest of the world. And, and that should make us grateful. Like, let's, let's thank God for rescuing us from contentment with lesser things. Let's thank him for rescuing us from a contentment with sin. I mean, I mean, think of how much of our lack of happiness oftentimes hinges on things just not going our way. I mean, as I think back to the things that make me the most unhappy, as I think back, because I mean, I'll, be, I'll just be real. The last few years, it has been hard a lot of times to find happiness. When I'm getting constant plans canceled. And when I finally think that, you know, things are going back to normal and another thing happens to remind me it's not. But, but so much of that is hinged on just things not going my way, on minor inconveniences, on disruptions of my plans. And so, so pride is really at the root of so much of our unhappiness. And so if, if you want to be a happy Christian, you're not going to prioritize the same things that, that the world is. You're not going to buy the advertisements trying to sell you on that kind of life. And so another summary question. Do I live my life in the same way and for the same things unbelievers do? If so, I will not be happy. Number three, the third thing a happy person doesn't do. A happy person does not sit in the seat of scoffers. I have a lot to say about this. I'm going to check the time. All right. What is a scoffer? Who is this talking about? Let's start with a biblical definition. Uh, Proverbs 21, 24. I think this is kind of funny, um, but it does the job pretty well. Proverbs 21, 24 says this. A scoffer is the name of the arrogant, haughty man who acts with arrogant pride. I had to check when I read that to make sure that was actually an ESV because it just didn't sound like that was the translation. It's kind of funny. Um, but clearly here, at least as a biblical definition, as a starting point, the Bible emphasized that a scoffer is marked by arrogance. Let's be more practical, though. What is scoffing? Scoffing, the act of scoffing, is mocking, ridiculing, deriding, making jokes, holding in contempt, which, which implies that you're seeing somebody as worthless or beneath your consideration. Scoffing generalizes. It tries to get laughs at the expense of its object by making them look silly or stupid. And its goal is to make you think less of them. It's sarcastic. It's mean-spirited. It's exaggerated. It doesn't give the benefit of the doubt. You guys know, can you guys picture examples of scoffing based on that description? What does the Bible say about scoffers? I have a few verses here that kind of paint a picture of what a scoffer looks like. And I want you to notice they all come from Proverbs, which means I think that scoffing is a wisdom issue. There's, a, there's an issue of wisdom versus foolishness when it comes to scoffers. So let's, let's look at some of these verses. Proverbs 19, 29. Condemnation is ready for scoffers. That's pretty intense. Proverbs 13, 1. A wise son hears his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. So a scoffer doesn't consider the fact that they might be wrong. They won't be open to hearing correction or criticism. Proverbs 22, 10. 
Drive out a scoffer and strife will go out and quarreling and abuse will cease. So this makes the case that scoffers are the source of conflict and fighting and disagreement. Proverbs 24, 9, the devising of folly is sin and the scoffer is an abomination to mankind. So the Bible clearly uses very strong language towards scoffers. It's not pulling any punches. It's not painting a very good picture in the whole wise versus foolish uh, kind of dualism of the book of Proverbs. Scoffers are very clearly on the side of the fool, right? Now, I think at this point, that the fact that a happy person does not sit in the seat of scoffers might be the hardest one for some of us to hear so far. Because we live in a culture, a society, that celebrates scoffers. Think about it. We love and platform people who have the most witty, most cynical, most cutting takes on our perceived opponents. You notice that? We have favorite scoffers. We listen to certain people because they scoff best. We, we like them because they're the best at demeaning and mocking people we don't like. Because of that, people try to supply moments of scoffing. And I, I think a big reason for this, that this is the place that our society is in where we just love scoffers. A big part of this, not all of it, but I think a big part of it is that social media is all about scoffing, right? Like, like viral tweets are usually scoffing tweets. And, and on there, it's easy to like, you know, with, without a face to scoff and to make fun of and to get your likes and your retweets and your shares by being as mean-spirited and nasty and sarcastic as you can possibly be. Now, it's kind of funny, standing here as a senior, um, I've realized there's a lot of people here who have not known me for super long. I'm kind of on the oldest group here, one of them. But for those of you who haven't been around super, super long and didn't know me a few years ago, I very much was a scoffer. Like, straight up, I did all these things. I used social media to scoff. I, I sat in the seat of other scoffers. That was what I surrounded my social media with. I got on trying to find scoffing. And I promise it did not make me happy. It made me way less happier than it would have had I not been scoffing because I was constantly just being upset and agitated and irritated. And so, so let me take you in this, inside the mind of a former master scoffer for a minute, okay? When, when you're scoffing, you are constantly trying to cause the other side to look as silly and ridiculous as possible with no benefit of the doubt. You are trying to get affirmation from those you agree with by the very act of putting down those you all mutually disagree with. And listen, and this might sound kind of silly for me to say at first until I get to the point I'm making. If I were to go back and look at, I've, I've archived or deleted most of the posts that I was a scoffer in, but if I were to go back and look at those, I don't think that I would really disagree with the point I was making in any of them. I, I think that I probably still would agree with them in principle. My point by saying that though, is that scoffing is still wrong, even if you're right. In fact, I think it discredits and delegitimizes your rightness. I, th I think that we think, especially as Christians, that just because we're right and just because we have like the right position, it is okay if we just make the other side look stupid. If we paint the other side as, as, as enemies, 
and not as lost people. Think of all, I mean, I mean seriously, just, just think of all the damage that has been done to worthy and noble causes just because we've made scoffing our primary means of communicating. I mean, I can think of, of people who've just gotten just, just caught up in scoffing as their primary mode of communicating. People who started off as well-meaning. I mean, I, I, like I said, I was one of those people. Why do you think our culture is so miserable and unhappy and panicking and angry at one another all the time? At least one large part of that, at least according to this verse, has to be that we come, have come to a point where we have filled our highest and most respectable positions with scoffers. As this, as this verse says, you can't be happy if that's who you're around. So <laughs> I thought about giving a list of names of people who I think are prominent scoffers on all sides of things, and I decided not to do that. Uh, if you care and you want to hear my opinion, you can come ask me, um, but I don't see why I'd care about my opinion. I'm not like the arbiter of scoffing. Um, so I decided not to go into that and not give you my opinion on who scoffers are. But I do encourage you tonight and in the next week to pay attention to who you're listening to. Pay attention to the pastors, the, the, the Christian thought leaders that you're listening to, the political commentators who you follow, the, the social media accounts that are filling up your feed. Are they scoffers? Are they primarily scoffers? If so, drop them. Simple as that. Is, is your friend group, I don't, I don't want to give people who just don't use social media or maybe just don't use it in that way, a free pass either. Is your friend group a safe place to scoff? Sometimes I think that like, I've seen that in my life, you know, I think, oh man, I've really improved on the scoffing front over the last uh, few years. But now I think what I've done to some extent is just kind of like privatize who I scoff around. I think as long as I'm not putting it out publicly, as long as I'm just kind of scoffing with a couple of friends behind, you know, closed doors, it's all good. Do you, do you scoff with your significant other? With, with your best friend? There, there's, there's not an exception on that. We like to think it's better, but it's not. That's, that's still scoffing. I'm sitting in the seat of scoffing. In fact, I guarantee that the psalmist wasn't talking about scoffing on social media when he wrote it. And it also doesn't have to occur within the context of like hot button controversial religious debates or political issues. Do you just scoff at the way that other people do things, the average things that are different than the way that you do them? Just because, because your way is so much better. And this person is so silly. That's, that's still scoffing. I, I, I've kind of like made it very pointed towards, I think, the areas that we are seeing it play out in our society the most, but it is not limited to those things. Scoffing, just the kind of <laughs> mocking laugh that we give to so many people. A happy person does not do that. They do not surround themselves with that. And so I need to move on. So summary question. Do I spend my time around people, spend my time in person, spend my time virtually, whatever? Do I spend my time around people who are always scoffing and mocking? If so, I will not be happy. So let's move on. We've talked about a lot of nots, right? A lot of things a happy person does not do. But verse two offers two things that a happy person does do. And it's interesting. This is not really, these are very similar and they're very simple. A happy person, first of all, delights in the law of the Lord. 
To delight in something is to take pleasure in it, to desire it, to enjoy it. And so to to make it more practical, I just kind of want to paint a picture of what delight looks like in action. Whether it's in God's word, but just just in general, I think these kind of pictures will be helpful. Um, So I think it's going to be effective first to look at what it looks like when I don't delight in God's word. And then we're going to flip those and we're going to look at signs that we do. Uh, But these are things that I've, as I've examined my own life, as I've examined seasons where I've just really been um, into God's word and seasons I haven't been, here's what it's looked like for me. Here are five signs I don't delight in God's word. Number one, I don't read it. It's pretty simple. Uh, It stays in the passenger seat of my car on the rest of the week until I need it on Sundays and Tuesdays. I don't read it because I don't delight in it. Number two, I read it out of duty. So I do read it, maybe every single day, but it's just so I can check my box. I read it so I can tell my D group that I was in the Word this week, or because I think that's what a good Christian is supposed to do, but it's an obligation, right? Like it's, it's something that I feel that I, that I have to make room for in my schedule because it just has to happen because this is what a Christian does. Duty, I think to some degree, is the opposite of delight. So I don't read it. I read it out of duty. Number three, I don't remember what I read because it grabbed very little of my attention. If I don't know that much about the Bible, I'm probably not delighting in it. If I can't tell you later in the day what it was that I read that morning, I probably wasn't delighting in what I read. I just skim it while I'm thinking about other things and couldn't really tell you what it was. I don't know it very well. Number four, so I don't read it. I read it out of duty. I don't remember what I read. Number four, I don't talk about it. I'm not regularly sharing with with other believers, with my brothers and sisters, what I've been reading in the Word. Things that I've studied don't make their way into my conversations with my friends just because it's not really on my mind. And and furthermore, if I'm not sharing it and talking about it with other believers, I'm definitely not talking about it with unbelievers. It's definitely not making way into my conversations there as I'm sharing the gospel. I, I don't do that. I don't try to explain the things that I believe and why I believe the Bible because I'm, I don't delight in it. It's the fifth sign I don't. I don't read it. I don't read it out of duty. I don't remember what I read. I don't talk about it. The fifth sign I don't delight in God's word is I don't notice when it's missing. This is one that I really can notice in my life as, as a difference maker. If I've gone days or weeks without focused time in the word, my life doesn't look any different if I don't delight in God's word. I might not even realize I haven't been in it until somebody asks. I might not even realize I haven't been in it until somebody says, how's your time in the Word been? And you think, well, it's, wow, it's been, it's been a few weeks since I've been in the Word. But what are some signs I do delight in God's Word? I think the signs above just flip, right? So if, if I delight in God's Word, I read it often. I can't get enough of it. I'm reading it all the time. Not only that, I read it, instead of out of duty, I read it for pleasure, for fun. There's, there's nothing that feels dutiful about it. I don't even worry about checking the box. I don't feel coerced into it. I don't, I don't care about any of that because I just want to be in the word. Third sign that I do, I study it deeply and I know it well. A measure of my delight is how well I know it. How, how well can I navigate the Bible? How well can I trace themes through it? Can I connect the dots from one book to another? And how well do I know messages within a certain book? Do I know where to look for specific things that come up? Number four, instead of I don't talk about it, I can't stop talking about it if I delight in it. Again, both with believers, when I'm around other Christians, I'm excited to share with them. I can't wait to tell my my friends about the things I've been reading in God's word. And when I'm around non-Christians, I can't help but to share the gospel with them and initiate conversations with them about the word because I delight in it. 
And finally, the fifth sign that I delight in God's word is I hurt when it's missing. It makes me think of Psalm 42. I don't have that on the screen, um, so I'm not going to quote it exactly either, but the psalmist says, it is a deer pants for water, so my soul pants for you, or for your word. I can think of times in my life, uh, times I'm, I'm happy with, I think, that I was delighting in God's word more than I was at other points in time, that I could tell when I hadn't been in it in a while. Now, we all delight in something. We all probably delight in multiple things. You could use those five kind of diagnostics above to figure out what it is you delight in. It's what you do often, what you're constantly talking about, what you're up to date on, what you feel when it isn't around. Those of you who know me well know that I delight in college football. I love Virginia Tech football. I don't know why, but <laughs> I do. And um, so think, think about those five pictures. I watch, I watch college football all day on Saturdays when it's football season. And I do it for fun. And I study it deeply. I could tell you every football championship winner for the last two decades, probably, off the top of my head. Don't quiz me on that afterwards. I can't stop talking about it. Delaney will tell you. And I hurt when it's missing. When it's like the middle of summer, and it's been a long time since it's been football season, I hurt. I'm ready for it to come back. So, so kind of work through those pictures on your own and figure out what it is that you delight in. But imagine, like, the psalmist says, if we want to be happy, that's the kind of way that we will uh, delight in God's word. So, so the Bible says that, or the, the, the Bible should be this for us. Think about those things that you delight in. Think about if you had that kind of enthusiasm for the Bible. And I also want to challenge you. It says delight in the law of the Lord. Think about what is meant by law here. This is, this is so cool. In, in, in light of what should have existed, what would have existed at this point, he was talking about the first few books of the Bible. He, was really, he really meant the law. And so can you say, maybe you, maybe you heard those and you think, you know what, I delight in God's word. Can you say you delight in all of God's word? Do you delight in Leviticus and Numbers as much as you do in Romans 8 and 9? I guess I heard some, I guess not. <laughs> that, one, that one stung me too. Does it stir the same excitement and desire within you to go to those books? And you might wonder, why can I delight in the law specifically? What is it about this list of rules that I'm never, ever, ever going to be able to follow that can cause me to delight in them? Well, think of how much more of a reason we have to delight in God's law than even the author did here. We can delight in God's law because Jesus fulfilled it. As we're delighting in God's law properly, we are seeing things that we just can't ever do. But what we're delighting in is the person and the work of Jesus that did it on our behalf. I love what Psalm 37.4 says. It says, uh, I didn't write this one down, that if we delight yourself, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Again, I, I mentioned earlier, I think a lot of the times the reasons we aren't happy are because we don't have the desires of our heart. And this isn't saying that if we delight in God, he's gonna just give us all those things. I think what it implies is that he's gonna reshape our desires and then give us those. So summary question for delight. And I hope that um, you'll just kind of examine the different things you delight in based on those pictures. I found them really helpful for me the last few weeks. Summary question. Do I have this kind of passionate, enthusiastic delight for God's word? If so, I am on the road to finding happiness. 
Second thing a happy person does, they meditate on it day and night. So I would argue that meditation is the natural response of delight. If I delight in something, it just makes sense that I'm going to end up meditating on that thing. Meditate, what it literally means, and so I talked about it at the beginning, and I said that that was kind of a goal for this, right? That I wanted to show you what it looks like to meditate. What what that word literally means, the, the, the literal translation of that verb is to murmur. It implies that it's like always on your mind, always coming out of you. The word is also translated sometimes imagine or study. Interestingly, if you just look down further on your page in Psalm 2, um, it says, uh, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? That word plot is the exact same word. So it has to do with what you're studying, what you're thinking about. And so, so that's what meditation looks like. And when? It says meditates on it day and night. I think we typically think of being in the word like once a day. Like I know, you know, I, when, I, when I think about accountability from the word, I talk about how many days I was in the word. If you get in once a day, it seems like this is saying if you want to be happy, you're going to be in it at least two times a day, right? Day and night. Uh, but I think what it's getting at here is just that it's continual, that it's constant, that I'm meditating on it all throughout the day. Related to these delight signs that we just talked about, right? Like it's, it's always on my mind. I'm reading it often and for fun, and I I know it well, and I study it, and I talk about it. So what does it look like to meditate? There are so many good resources that I looked at as I was preparing this that I would love to share with you um, if this is a discipline that you think you want to grow more in. Uh, but, But what it looks like simply is kind of what we've been doing this entire sermon, taking scripture slowly and in small chunks and going word by word and phrase by phrase, trying to just pull everything out of it that we can. Trying to just get as much meaning out of it as we can. Sitting there sometimes for long periods of time getting nothing because we're just waiting. It also usually involves prayer and memorization. So what it might look like if you're praying through this psalm as you're meditating on it is, you know, blessed is... Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. So you stop and you pray, God, show me the ways that I am following the counsel of the wicked. And thank you for being um, a mighty counselor, a wonderful counselor. Then you move on to the next one. And you pray, stands in the way of sinners. And you pray, God, would you uh, continue to sanctify me so that I'm not standing in the way of sinners. Thank you for saving me from my sin. You're, you're, You're responding back to God and you're taking your time. So like I said, there are countless resources that I would love to share with you to help you um, if if you're interested in that. Uh, But this practice is crucial to your communion with God, and I think it's one that we all should learn more from. I I think also it's important because, like I said, it is a natural result of delighting. It is maybe like the the health indicator of whether or not we are delighting in Scripture. If, If you delight, it becomes so much easier and much more natural to meditate. And if you don't delight, trying to incorporate meditation which requires time and focus and energy, becomes a lot more strenuous and difficult. So that's what a happy person does do. They delight in God's word, and because they delight in it, they meditate on it. And think of what happens when you do that. <laughs> Delighting and meditating counters everything in verse 1. If you delight and meditate on God's word, it gives you counsel. It gives you a way of life to live by and something to live for. It gives you the wisdom needed to know that scoffing is foolish, and it gives you the view of others necessary to not mock them and scoff at them. And so as we've worked through this, I've been kind of building to this point. We asked, how can I be happy? 
So here, here's the point. In order to be truly happy, I must find my continual moment-by-moment pleasure in God's word rather than in the ways of the world. I'll say it again. In order to be truly happy, I must find my continual moment-by-moment pleasure in God's word rather than in the ways of the world. When I was originally prepping this, I kind of stopped here. And the more that I sat with it and thought about it, I realized that I'm just kind of expecting you to take my word for that without much of an explanation about why. And I think that's important because I think that helps us to land um, at Jesus. Why is it that in order to be happy, meditating on and delighting in God's word is, is the key? Why, why is that? Why, why is this? If, if you're not a Christian, you might be wondering, why is this old ancient book the thing that has the key to happiness? Because it's the story of the gospel. The Bible reveals God to us, the originating source of all happiness. It causes us to hate our sin, the ultimate happiness killer and joy stealer. It reminds us in every chapter and on in every verse that we are totally unable to follow the things it says, but that Jesus, the son of God himself, who inspired the book with his own perfect breath, kept it all on our behalf. It overwhelms us with the cover-to-cover story of our redemption from sins by the work of Jesus on the cross, orchestrated by God from before the beginning of time and proclaimed on every page of this great book. Band, you can make your way back up to the front. But listen, if you are delighting in God's word because you just enjoy the literature and the stories, or if you meditate on it for some kind of purely philosophical or mystical experience, it won't make you happy. Grammar and prose and philosophy don't have the power to make you happy. So, so if that's why you're delighting in it, that's why you're meditating on it, then, then all this is wrong. The good news, the gospel makes you happy. It makes you happy because it is the news that the one very thing you needed to happen to rescue you from eternal condemnation and separation has happened. It makes you happy because it is the one message your soul depends upon and because you know deep down in your soul that you're so unworthy of it. Our only way to be happy is to delight in and meditate on God's word because only in God's word can we find the lengths at which God went to purchase our eternal happiness in him. Let's display our delight in Jesus by singing together to him now.